Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is March 30th, 2023. Happy MLB opening day to those of you who celebrate. Some of us are going to be jetting off to spring break, spring break vacation soon, but not before we give you the latest on some interesting FDA news. First up is Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics and its ALS candidate cell therapy. Sue, the company is finally getting the advisory committee meeting that it wanted. Yeah, so they had submitted a BLA back in September, immediately after Amelix got a positive advisory committee review for its um, ALS drug. But two months later, the FDA um, issued a refused to file letter citing clinical and, and statistical issues. Basically, the, the phase three trial failed. <laughs> Tell me if this doesn't sound like a familiar story. Um, failed its, its primary endpoint. So that's the key issue here. And this is um, a cell therapy. So this is not handled by CDER's Office of Neuroscience. This is being handled by the Center for Biologics new super office of therapeutic products. So Brainstorm has been advocating for an advisory committee hearing on this um, product, saying it wants a full and transparent airing and debate about the data. It has consistently pointed to um, favorable findings in the subgroup of patients with less advanced disease at baseline. I, I, you know, certainly it wants to kind of leverage the um, the positive advisory committee outcome that that Amelix experienced with its Relivrio, which went on to get approved, um, as well as the Tofersen, um outcome last week involving Biogen's drug for a subset of ALS patients. So I think, you know, Brainstorm certainly thinks the um, the public sentiment is on its side, as well as perhaps sort of the the regulatory wins. Um, but I I think it is important to note that it is a different division that is reviewing this, and this um, the CBER office has previously taken issue with some of Brainstorm's public comments, uh, very bullish comments about the data in this trial. To, uh, going so far as to post a public statement on CBER's website saying. We do not find this this therapy to be effective based on the phase three results. So there's been, you know, certainly some disagreement between the company and and the FDA over the years on this product. So they uh, ended up filing the BLA over protest, which does not have a great history of success for a sponsor in terms of what research we were able to find of, of previous cases where sponsors have done this. And then so they're going to get their advisory committee under those circumstances. But the date of the uh, committee meeting has not yet been set. Okay, so take me through the company's perspective here. What What, what is the goal? I guess, I mean, you, you've got we just, you know, you just said there, you know, there isn't a great track record in filing over protests and getting approved. The division has already come out and said we don't think this product is effective based on the phase three results. I can't imagine that any kind of agency briefing for this committee is going to be 
necessarily positive unless there's something radically different than what has already been said. So what what are they, I guess, what, what, are, what are they hoping for here? Well, they're hoping to drum up a whole lot of patient support, I'm sure, to get their drug approved, their cell therapy approved for a very devastating neurodegenerative disease that has recently seen a lot of development and positive regulatory actions in that space, both with regard to the Relivrio approval in September and then with the positive advisory committee review of Deferson just last week. So, you know, the ALS is a very powerful patient community. And I think that they're, you know, just trying to to beat the drum and convince FDA you need to use your regulatory flexibility here because we really have very little in this space. Now, another thing about Brainstorm is this is a company that is in some serious financial trouble. Um, They reported their year-end earnings today, and as of December 2022, they had only $3 million in cash on hand. So that's not a lot. Do you think that this, this like the review of Brainstorm's product would have gone differently if it if it had been in in Cedar, C D E R D as a dog, the drug, you know, the drug center versus the biologic center, and that part of the reasoning for them like pushing an advisory committee is because like the advisory this advisory panel has looked at the other Cedar, you know, ALS drugs recently, so they may sort of. I don't know, be sort of more influenced by the philosophy that CEDAR, again, the drug center has brought to looking at ALS medicines. Like, yeah, you know, so this will go to a different advisory committee. This, I okay. expect this will go to the cell, cell and gene therapies advisory committee, although there may be some representation from the um, peripheral and central nervous system drugs advisory committee, which is the, the panel that has reviewed both Relivrio and Tefersen. Um, it's a very interesting question as to whether the review of this cell therapy would have been more positive had it gone through the Office of Neuroscience. I don't think we can definitively say yes or no about that, but we have certainly seen where that the Office of Neuroscience in CEDAR has been willing to sort of go out on a limb with these drugs um, with some not terribly robust efficacy in these devastating neurodegenerative diseases. Now, another factor may be the, you know, the cell therapy aspect of the whole thing in terms of does that raise different concerns um, than say, you know, your traditional drug that's regulated by CDER. Yeah, that 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 question actually was leads into one that I was thinking about too, was that, you know, I guess we we I'm wondering how much of the collaboration between the two centers that they, you know, they like to say they they talk all the time. This would be a case where you would maybe want, if you're brainstorm, you certainly want that because you want the Seeger people telling them everything they know about the disease and how they use the flexibility, you know, in that case. But yeah, I guess that this might be a good instance to kind of watch to see, you know, how much collaboration between CDER and CBER occurs here? Well, not just collaboration too, but sort of alignment or misalignment (laughs) (laughs) relative to what CDER has done in its previous decisions. Yeah, I mean, the the, the centers uh, um, 
in in some ways are obviously sort of kind of uh, two peas in a pod uh, um, in terms of sort of kind of their uh, uh, their approach, but obviously sort of kind of every uh, uh, you know division director and uh, uh, office director and, and reviewer uh, um, themselves uh, um, you know has their personal opinions about stuff. And uh, technically, if it's a if it's a BLA, it's a uh, you know uh, governed by the uh, Public Health uh, Service Act. Uh, as opposed to an NDA under the uh, FDNC Act, so there are uh, nominally different uh, criteria for uh, um, for approval. So uh, um, it's uh, um, it'll be interesting to see uh, um, if they uh, uh, FDA or try to uh, make a big deal about something being uh, you know safe, pure, and potent as opposed to being uh, uh, safe and effective. So uh, um, a, a fascinating uh, uh, compare and contrast uh, case uh, coming up for us. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting in terms of the compare contrast because um, with Tofferson, Tofferson also failed its primary endpoint in its in its um, efficacy trials phase three trial. So, you know, and there was a lot of discussion about post hoc exploratory analysis and favorable trends and all that, and that's essentially what convinced the advisory committee that. They they liked that, but they ultimately concluded there was not enough clinical and biomarker evidence to support regular approval, but they voted unanimously in favor of accelerated approval on the basis of a biomarker known as NFL. And so uh, Brainstorm is also saying that it has um, shown a reduction in NFL with its therapeutic. So it will be interesting to see sort of how much of that finding of a surrogate endpoint reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit may or may not carry over into the cell therapy space for Brainstorm's product. Well, and for the rare disease community, this is kind of a, I don't want to say it's a starting over at square one, but in essential, it might be that case because, you know, after all these years working on the CEDAR um, reviewers to understand kind of the how rare diseases are different than common diseases like, you know, heart disease and and deserve kind of, you know, well, we keep saying flexibility, I mean, but that's really what, I mean, there's really no better way to, to say that. CBER has experience with that, but I don't, I don't get the impression that it's the same, maybe the same, they've seen the same kind of level of rare disease lobbying that maybe CEDAR has seen. So are are they prepared for that? Do they understand, you know, how well do they understand? And maybe, I don't know, you know, that sort of, you know, that perspective that I'm sure is going to come out in the advisory committee meeting, especially now that gene therapy and, and Peter Marks has talked about this, that uh, gene therapy is kind of the, for rare diseases is going to be, you know, if it's not already a big deal, it's going to be even a bigger deal going forward with, uh, with you know, the explosion in, in that sector. Right. I think C. Burr probably has been seeing a lot of lobbying um, in the rare disease space. You know, we've seen that Sarepta's DMD gene therapy is going to be um, getting an ad com in the next couple of months. And um, Steber you know, in the past, I think it was in August or September, they approved um, uh, Bluebird Bio's gene therapy for a very, very rare disease. And they approved that accelerated approval on the basis of an intermediate clinical endpoint. So I certainly think 
that they are familiar with that sort of interaction with the rare disease community. Um, I just think it will be interesting to see sort of how much of Cedar's conclusions on ALS and the biomarker and the utility of a failed clinical trial will carry over into the Cedar space. Yeah, definitely something to definitely something to what a lot of people will be watching really closely as we go forward. Next up is FDA Commissioner Robert Califf. Sarah, he made his annual appearance at the House Appropriations Subcommittee to advocate for the agency budget uh, this week. What issues ended up uh, coming to the forefront? So, um, you know, drug issues and pharm- you know, prescription drug issues were not really a, um, the topic of the day, I guess, um, for appropriators. There was a lot of focus on um, FDA's oversight of the food space, particularly infant formula. And perhaps one of the reasons why um, that then led to supply chain issues also being sort of top of mind for lawmakers when thinking about um, drugs, although there were other reasons um, for that as well. Um, So it seemed like when drugs came up, it was pretty much all about kind of supply chain issues and you know, FDA oversees inspections, the resilience of the supply chain and why we don't manufacture more drugs here. Um, One sort of interesting idea raised by Andy Harris, who's the Republican subcommittee chair of the FDA Ag Appropriations Subcommittee, he suggested that, you know, to deal with some of the difficulties of conducting inspections abroad, particularly in countries like China, where they're not cooperative oftentimes, you know, that we do batch testing of imported drugs. Caliph seemed, you know, open to that, although suggested he would check more with Cedar. It seemed like from the way Andy Harris phrased this, it might be something like Congress might need to give FDA authority to do, Um, although I'm not 100% clear on that, but Harris seemed to suggest it as something that, you know, Congress might want to look into. Now, I know in sort of um, briefly touching base with our colleague Bowman Cox, who covers this, you know, this, those sorts of um, important inspections have, have not necessarily been embraced well by the drug industry in the past. And Caleb certainly noted that, you know, he's most concerned about you know, quality issues and so forth in the generic space and, you know, anything that then like these kinds of tests adds to costs could have implications for them as well. But, you know, it's interesting just to think about, you know, Congress definitely has their eye on both sides of, you know, the aisle. Both political parties have their eye on, um, you know, where drugs are manufactured and with a, um you know, push and desire to have more U.S.-based manufacturing and ensure quality. And um, perhaps that's no surprise given, you know, the shortages and supply chain kind of slowdowns experienced during the um, COVID pandemic. It certainly drew lots of people's attention to where drugs are made or not made. Um, And then also, you know, Congress has to reauthorize um, the big pandemic legislation this year, and the FDA has certainly um, put in a number of requests in their budget proposal for legislative changes that relate to supply chain issues as well. So I don't know, and I'm not going to proclaim to be the manufacturing expert like Bowman is, but I mean, I guess I'm wondering if this this idea goes kind of against the FDA's philosophy with manufacturing 
that it you know embraces now, which is it wants quality at the beginning, which is you know in the facility. And if you're waiting to do you know do your you know in lieu of an inspection, you're doing batch testing when they get to the border. Is that is that kind of going against that philosophy because you don't you you know you potentially don't end up fixing the issues that are in the manufacturing process you're just taking out batches of drug that aren't fitting your specifications i don't know you know i don't know if that if i'm way off base on that or not but you know it just seems like if you're if you're not going to inspect the facilities whether you can or you can't you know and you want you're proclaiming manufacturing quality at the beginning waiting to check product until it gets to the border doesn't seem to fit that philosophy. That's a great point, uh, Derek. It's, I don't think it's anybody's ideal solution to sort of kind of, uh, you know, track the uh, the 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 uh, out of spec horses down after they've uh, uh, left the barn. Um, but if the uh, the barn's opaque and you can't uh, get the uh, um, the the visas to get in and inspect the bar, and then you're sort of kind of left with trying to uh, torture this analogy as long as I can to, uh, to to make your point that sort of that uh, you know the uh, there should be some check on quality somewhere, and if it's uh, hard to do, sort of kind of at the uh, the point of manufacture, or sort of kind of uh, even designing a system so that it can continuously check uh, during manufacturing as the FDA wants uh, manufacturers to, to transition to, um, uh, you know the the border check is. Uh, um, it's the last, uh, the last line, unless you're going to be checking them in, uh, in once they're in, in, in uh, you know, wholesalers' warehouses or something. So uh, that's uh, um, that's what uh, Harris seems to be asking about, and whether FDA or you know industry thinks that that is uh, is worth it kind of remains to be seen. But that is the uh, the unappealing, but per- perhaps uh, last option, depending on how they feel about the uh, access to China, et cetera. Yeah, there was interesting. Harris flagged that um, he his understanding was that some hospital systems are already have already taken it upon themselves to do some of this checking with um, generic medicines because they're worried about quality. Um, so, um, but yeah, I kind of agree with Matt and what you said, Derek. Right? Like, ideally, you wouldn't. Ideally, you'd want to catch problems sooner before they, you know, result in you know, full batches, I guess, of drug that have to be thrown out. Yeah, I mean, the the other thing I thought was interesting, you know, was that, you know, we have another indication, it seems like, that the focus, you know, both on the FDA side and now on the Capitol Hill side is not drugs, which has happened before. I've I've sat through hearings where, you know, they they made a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of questions about handling food, but I think those were more in the context of agriculture because the the chairs the chair the ranking member both were from agriculture focused states. This this time it seems a little different though. Um, you know, and you know, not surprising given the infant formula issue and and supply chain issues that that have come along with that. But um, you know, I'm curious to get your reaction to that. You know, to where you really don't see a focus on drugs even even at the Capitol. You know, up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I I wasn't too surprised. Not only, you know, has this food and baby formula issue kind of dominated a lot of attention for FDA for a while now, but there was even like, I think there was a newer baby call recall, baby formula recall just made uh, that made some news maybe in the past like week or two. So that even added more kind of like 
ammunition to lawmakers looking at this. Other drug issues that I think some lawmakers wanted to talk about, Califf like deflected on, like some people did want to talk about the abortion pill and um, everything going on with FDA there, but Califf basically refused to answer questions on that, citing, you know, the ongoing legal cases. So basically that kind of closed the door to one, another topic that, you know, might be coming up. I think it's also maybe worth thinking about, you know, we just sort of finished the user fee cycle, right? Um, so maybe it's just kind of like where we are in terms of timing and Congress's attention, um, you know, if they were thinking ahead more in terms of legislating, um, you know, perhaps we might, might have gotten more questions. And I think that maybe, again, sort of why some of the supply chain issues rose to the top for, um, you know, when drug issues did come up because, you know, they may be thinking both not just in terms of like appropriations, but, you know, what they should be thinking about in terms of legislating for the um, PAPA reauthorization. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, yeah, they're just out of maybe they're just out of issues to to bring up because most of them have been addressed already. So, yeah, <laughs> although that's still hard to believe. But but it, it's just also one of those days where it seemed like I, I actually the past like it seems like I mean, Congress does this a lot. They kind of cram in a lot of hearings and topics, you know, in the few days they're here and the few weeks they're here. And th this hearing probably was not the the biggest, most attended hearing among lawmakers. You know, it was fairly short for an appropriations and a House hearing where, you know, you know, the House just has more more people on their committees, more members that could ask questions. So I mean, some of it was just like might have been a little bit of that dynamics, like what other topics were keeping lawmakers occupied yesterday that they didn't um, have time to sit down and ask Caleb questions. Though, again, again, that's shows you something right it shows you that again for a lot of lawmakers you know whatever is going on at fda in general is not their top priority right now and certainly not drug issues yeah and i you know i'm sure there are a lot of people that you know either in or watching the fda will who will say that you know the lack of attention is probably a good thing um because it lets them get down to you know get down to business and, you know, whether it's implementing the user fee acts or, you know, doing their day-to-day -day work. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, I think some people will view that as a, at least a some, somewhat positive move. Finally, we're going to revisit the issue of in-person meetings. After three years, the FDA finally conducted its first in-person meeting with industry on March 28th, with a few others scheduled in, in the coming weeks. It employed the new hybrid format that allowed some sponsor and FDA representatives to meet in person at the FDA's White Oak headquarters, while others joined via Zoom and were projected on a large screen in the front of the room. As the person who reported this story, I have to say it was very fun listening to the details of the room itself. They were, it was described as, you know, we were sitting kind of close together, closer together than I remember. So it was more intimate and we everyone was able to be heard and that the sound quality was really good. Not things you really talk about when you're talking about a meeting with with the FDA. But, uh, you know, for the most part, it was described as going well. So this format is now available for type A biosimilar product development type one type X, which is for um, OTC monographs. Pre-ANDA product development meetings and ANDA pre-submission meetings. 
sponsors seem to be excited about the the prospect of going back to White Oak. A lot of a lot of people have argued that face to face meetings are just better than than over Zoom. But others have said that the fully virtual setup is preferable now to having to travel and all those other things that in, are involved in going to White Oaks headquarters, which is in suburban Washington here. Along that line, which is interesting, the agency said that it received 23 meeting requests that were eligible for the hybrid format, but most of them didn't ask for it. So I guess I'm I'm, I'm kind of thinking here that maybe the virtual meeting is going to be kind of one of these pandemic-related changes that's going to end up being permanent and kind of widely embraced. I don't know. If, I'm, I'm guessing the FDA is going to, you know, is 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 going to push that. They have been uh, said that they like these meetings, but you know, do you all think that the the era of the fully in-person meeting is pretty much over now? I hope not, as far as advisory committees are concerned. I have to say they haven't they haven't uh, scheduled a fully in-person advisory committee yet, but uh, we're we're patiently waiting for one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how uh, FDA has uh, seemed slower than uh, you know most of the other institutions that we cover, sort of you know, large medical conferences or uh, uh, hill hearings in terms of sort of kind of uh, returning to uh, in-person gathering. Uh, um, you know, obviously it's for kind of everyone who's uh, moved from an office to uh, um, a home office and then sort of kind of uh, back to an office or to a uh, a hybrid uh, structure has uh, felt the advantages and disadvantages of them both. And uh, FDA seems to be sort of much more firmly in the, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, the, the remote uh, has its advantages uh, camp than through kind of uh, enjoying the benefits of uh, um, in-person interaction. I don't know what that says about through kind of how uh, they felt about uh, getting together with sponsors beforehand, but uh, um, maybe it was not as uh, invigorating as uh, we found our in-person uh, um, uh, um, events uh, after the, the pandemic. So uh, um, maybe there's a lesson for sponsors there uh, um, too, in terms of, sort of, kind of how they were working with FDA uh, in-person beforehand. So uh, I do think that you will uh, eventually see more and more uh, um, in-person meetings. Uh, you know, this is not the um, uh, best time of the year, uh, uh, time in the world for sponsors to be um, laying out uh, um, a lot of money for travel. Uh, you know, obviously, we're kind of with the uh, stock market, uh, you know, biotechs are uh, nervous. Uh, you know, even the large manufacturers have to be thinking about the IRA and sort of how that's going to change their uh, uh, the revenue models in uh, in years to come. So it could be sort of kind of everyone's enjoying a little bit of the, uh, the virtual uh, lifestyle here. But uh, I would think that... Uh, um, Eventually, you'll see more and more in-person meetings at uh, at White Oak as as time goes by. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. I'm you know you you all are, as we talk about this, I'm reminded of at the very beginning of the pandemic, way whenever was that in 2020, where when they went fully virtual and everybody, you know, we were we were listening to all these people, all these worries about. You know, oh, you're gonna, you know, you're losing that human, you know, you're losing an, el- you know, an element of the human interaction when you're fully virtual and with these meetings, you know, the like the hallway conversations are so important as they walk you in and out, and you can kind of get the, you know, the don't, you know, just don't worry kind of thing from the FDA people. You guys are okay if if the meeting, you know, you kind of get a a better kind of sense of how things went and. I don't know. Maybe that's largely gone away now. I know I've heard, you know, I've heard several people say 
I get on the Zoom, we ask our questions, they get answered, we hang up, that's it. We're happy. So, you know, it it's a it's it's an it's an but you know, and then again at the same time you hear people say, I need to be in front of the person, I give a better presentation that way, I can read the room. You know, there's all that, you know, that dynamic too that people prefer. So, yeah, it it, it it's re- it'll be really interesting to see if you know, if we get some data kind of on how many of these hybrid meetings versus fully virtual meetings end up being scheduled. And if, you know, even if if it becomes a problem, the FDA has had problems scheduling meetings in the past, you know, um, if they have to go back to kind of, you know, rethinking how they, um, you know, how they schedule these and their goals for those um, too, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how industry kind of adjusts back. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. 